Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to the 2011 Entrepreneurial Bash. Please welcome Bob and all of our panelists. Thank you so much, Patricia. I'm going to dive right in here. And uh, our, our goal here is to get uh, some great uh, advice and inspiration from the panel and then to have some time for some uh, questions as well. You, uh, you're all in different industries. The thing that you share and, you know, what I find endlessly fascinating is the ability to take something from nothing and to make it truly significant where so many other companies could not do this. This is my one crass moment in the program where I am going to single you out because you wouldn't do it yourselves. My burning question, and I, I'll bet some people here share it, is how did you do that? Al, how did you, you, you took a, a team of uh, six or seven of your friends and now you're sitting together and how do you get from there to the, what PEMSTAR did? First point, you said the burning question. All my answers are burning. They're answers. all burning. Uh, yes, they're all burning. But you hit the, head, you hit the nail on the head with the, it was six or seven of us. It was a team. And uh, one of the things I experienced both working at IBM and then PEMSTAR and then our current company, Hardcore Computer, it, it is all about the team. And, and in, in our case, we, we couldn't have accomplished what we, what we accomplished without the team. Or, you know, there were seven or eight founders, and every, everybody brought something unique to the table. Everybody contributed unbelievably. And collectively working together, we were, we were able to accomplish great things and then qu quickly replicate that team to uh, several hundred within a matter of a year and then several thousand after a couple of years. And uh, so, yeah, the, so the, 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 the one, one big ingredient was you know, it was the right team to start out with and then capturing a culture that we could then, you know, attract other people into the, into the team and be able to do, do good things from a design standpoint, fast ramp up, and, uh, and do business around the world. One of the amazing things that your team did, uh, does anyone know Given Imaging, what they do? It's the uh, pill, the camera that you swallow, takes 50,000 shots. You did all the design work on that? We did design work and the robots to build the Given, given Imaging capsule. And, uh, one of the fun things about the PEMSTAR, we're an independent design and manufacturing firm, so we're able to you know, get involved in a lot of fun projects. Uh, Given Imaging was one. The, the Keurig Coffee Maker, which we, we did some of the original design work with uh, Keurig, and there's a host of other uh, projects. We did the uh, first coated stent for J&J Cordis, uh, which, which yeah, in the U.S. For, that was done in volume. So we're, we, we had, had a great team that could do could solve tough problems on design and manufacturing and then it resulted in, in being able to build those products around the world. So. so Jim, your challenge now is is that we need an answer that does not include team. And uh, so so how did you how did you do that where you just started with an investment fund but from scratch? Uh, Pure ego. <laughs> ego. <laughs> I mean, I, I found a category of publishing that I thought was undermanaged and underled, and it was very, very profitable, but it was mostly small little units around the country that were not aggregated in any meaningful way, 600 of them around the country, mostly mom and pops, third and fourth generation, and I'd been a publishing executive, I'd been a publishing manager, I knew how to manage these things better, and the problem is each one is so small it can't support much of a management team. We bought the first one for a below market, and I spent a year running it and learning what it took to grow it, what the mistakes were. I tried to get those out of the way early. I do that very well. I'm a great mistakes guy. Um, and then we began to buy more of them and to aggregate them under a single management team. And I can't do it all alone. There's no question about that. But I think the starting idea started with one person, uh, with really me and, and my ego. 
and, and if I could interrupt the train of thought for one second, our enterprise value was at one point eight hundred million. Now, sadly, it's five hundred million, but it's just a higher number than you said. Very good. I'm, I'm always selling. You understand? So I'm. I'm. I'm, telling. I'm, I'm glad to hear it's higher. Okay, I like okay, higher okay. numbers. Um, Bonnie, how about uh, in your case? So. Um, I'd have to agree with um, a team and um, I suppose a little bit of ego, but um, I, for me I think it all starts before all of that. I think it really starts with the value proposition of the business. You can have a great team, you can have an ego, but if you don't have a product or service that's a value and the way that you define value is, is that somebody wants to pay for it, um, then it makes no difference. Um, so you really have to um, understand what the value proposition is, what the business strategy of this is, and to be successful and to keep the doors open, um, it has to be a viable business from the start. Glenn, what was the, uh, the key with, with Eason that got you know, we, we were saying that we've got the toughest sitting at the end market. Yeah, market nothing's saying. left yet. So I'll, I'll say two things. And Putting I won't Mark actually... in that position makes me happy, though. <laughs> uh, because, because, you see, he, he made me lose a heartbeat this morning when, you know, you all think I email you too much with details and all that, and I email Mark just to remind him about being here, and, and he emails me back that he's not here and won't be on the panel, essentially. But uh, here he is. Sorry, we go. go on. No, that's um, so. I I'd actually say two things. One, you know, and I, I won't focus on Eason because that's actually the smallest one that we did. So, um, if you look at all the businesses today, and I've been fortunate to run three public companies now, and I have a venture fund, and we're making investments, and it's all about trends. So we bet on trends because, you know, frankly, it doesn't matter how good your team is or anything else. If you're a salmon swimming upstream, it's really tough. But if you get behind the right trend. Um, then the world kind of pushes you ahead. So, for example, Allscripts is all about electronic health care, electronic health records, and the like. And, you know, as people talk about our company, you know, our biggest challenge now is hiring um, and executing. But, you know, we have a $30 billion stimulus that's kind of pushing behind us. And the bet was 12 years ago is the world going to stay paper in health care or is it going to go electronic? And when we first started in electronic prescribing, you know, it was an uphill battle, office by office. But, you know, I had a sense that it can't be that healthcare is the last bastion of paper in the world. And now today, long, much longer than we thought. But we look for trends. So in our venture fund, we're looking at healthcare, we're looking at education, and we're looking at solar. And our view is that other than those three, nothing really matters. Because if you don't get those right, for sure, the United States isn't going to continue to be a leader if we don't solve health care, if we don't solve education, if we don't solve energy. And so if you get behind, if you, you know, get behind the right tidal wave, it's going to push everybody forward, even if you're not that good. Um, the second piece of that is kind of the opposite of ego, and that is humility. And uh, that's especially true when you're doing more than one company. Because you can get lucky and find a great idea and go forward. But when you go to do your second company, you really got to be humble. Because if you take companies public and you're at the top and then you sell the company, you're feeling really good. And then you go to start a new one, you go from staying in you know, the Four Seasons back to Motel 6. And you got to be prepared to do that. And most entrepreneurs aren't. And you know, the biggest part of that is when someone says, your idea is terrible, but here's one we pay for, you have to say, 
that, that's our new idea right there. And, and so you can't, and so you can't, the, the sense of ego, which I agree in a sense, you know, every CEO has to have some, but the flip side of that is you can't get tied to something that you think is your own. What's your own is understanding what clients want. And, and especially today, as the market moves so quickly, we have to be willing to throw out what we just loved and move to what's next. And it's very tough to do because that's a, that's a self-renewal process that doesn't come naturally. Because you were just in telling them how wonderful this is, now you say there's something better. So I'd say two things. One, figure out where the world is going. You know, there's this great Kafka saying, in a fight between when the world, bet on the world. And uh, so we try to say, where are the trends going? Let's just get ahead of those trends. And second, and by the way, it's not that hard to do. And second, um, you know, make sure that you have sufficient humility to say your customer knows better than you do in most cases. Glenn, the current uh, issue of Business Week, a uh, big article on electronic medical records that singled out all scripts and Cerner as winners. And there was a uh, private equity fund that said their, their estimate was 750 new entrants medical records, and most of them were going to go by the wayside. Yeah. Uh, well, we think, um, you know, what's happened in electronic health records is there's a lot of new entrants, but it's now started to get so complex that we think it'll be between three and five within the next 36 months. So we see dramatic consolidation. We, of course, have been leading some of that with our last year. We acquired uh, Eclipsis Corporation for uh, $1.3 billion, and, you know, we've indicated that we're going to continue to look for technology that makes sense in the market, but I think to do what you now need to do to secure this information, to connect it all together, um, to have sufficient technology. You know, when all of you see a new phone or a new iPad, you think it's great. When I see it, I say it's 150000 That's what it costs for each new device to bring it online to test it, just so somebody can pull up our apps on it. And uh, at that rate, it's very tough to enter the market. Now, that said, Healthcare is, you know, some, someone said recently to me they were really down and they said this is the beginning of the end in healthcare. You know, everything's getting worse. And, and I look at it the other way to kind of paraphrase the, you know, the Churchill saying this is the end of the beginning. And this is like when we all received <coughs> our first computers, we all said this is great and people said it's going to eliminate paper. And next 10 years, the paper industry, we all should have invested. It went like this. And, the best category was computer paper, fastest growing category in paper. And, but then after 10 years, just about five years ago, we started to connect those computers together. And when we did, you saw this eruption of new value, new businesses, collaboration, creativity. And that's what we're going to see now in healthcare, because as healthcare gets electronic and gets connected, there's going to be a million different apps that come out about things you can do. And so it's a great space to be in. It's just this base technology is probably not, the operating system, so to speak, is probably not the best place. But the innovation that's going to sit on top of it, you know, we have more than 100 companies developing on our platform now because we know we can't possibly do it all. And so we'll, we'll do what Apple did, and that is we'll be the base operating system. Mark, how about you? Back to the question, how, how does a guy starting a consulting company get to, was it 700 employees? For, uh, 1,200. But I wasn't going to correct you. Huh? I wasn't going to correct you, but it was 1,200. 14 offices, three continents. 
But, um, <laughs> but all right, so I, and it's funny because Glenn was right. I mean, I, they started, and I'm like, I am, we are, I'm like, he's I could have, if, I am if you so really, screwed. If you really wanted me to stroke your ego, I could say, how does somebody get to be friends with Bill Gates that doesn't and matter. Michael Dell? Um, so let's go through it. Okay, so team. You don't want to talk about you know, that. Okay. So team, I did not do it alone in any stretch of the imagination. I think team is excessively important. So I'm going to recap so I, you know, we can cover it together. And you know, I think the best thing I ever did was hire people way smarter than me. Okay? Next was ego. And I totally agree, you have to, and not ego to be boisterous and the like, but to basically recap and really believe in what you're doing. Because a lot of times people are going to say, what you're doing is wrong, because they don't have the same conviction and vision that you have. And I know, being in the technology industry, every new item that came out, every new device, every new trend was going to just wipe everything else away. Not quite the case, but it was going to change what we had done. And so we always were reinventing ourselves, which I thought I was going to go with follow trends and reinvent myself, but Glenn took that one. Um, then we've got the, you know, it's basically, you know, be able to go out and, and really believe and grow yourself. And I do believe that. And then Glenn's trends, is, I think, is spot on. Having been in the technology industry for 20 years and grown all throughout it, and been able to be, you know, as Bob alluded to, we were the only consulting firm to do work for all four of Bill Gates' companies. You know, Microsoft, his personal investment company, uh, Cascade, as well as the Photoshop Corbis, as well as his foundation. And be able to do those type of things, and constantly with leading edges, we won Partner of the Year, one time from both IBM, Lotus, and Microsoft, all in the same year. Uh, which again, they told us straight up, once we won one, you're not going to win the others, but you know, the results spoke for themselves. Um, it really is a situation where you have to be open-minded. And so I was really, I, I was going to go with trends, lost that at the last minute, um, because I do believe you have to be able to take an honest assessment of what's happening in industry, pick something you believe in, and believe in it, you know, whatever that may be, but be open-minded. So my, my point would be, and it builds a little bit off the humbleness, um, is to basically be prepared to say you're wrong. And more importantly, listen to your customers. You know, Bonnie said how important the customers are. Bottom line, you cannot invest enough in your business to keep it alive. Your investment for your business comes from your customers. So if your customers are telling you that you're doing a great job except for this, this, and this, listen to them. Take you back, challenge your team, and say, how can we do this, this, and this even better? Or better yet, think out of the box. If you guys were going off to start a new business and your goal was to destroy us in this area, what would you do? And challenge that team. Remember, in the recap, you've hired a smart team. You really believe in them. You have a common culture. You have a common core sets of values that you build off for your organization. Challenge them to think out of the box and figure out how to destroy your business and then make those changes yourself before an external company comes and destroys your business for you. Because if you destroy your own business, you'll grow. So as I, you know, when I went through the cycles of what Lante went through over the 20 years of business, there were constant changes. We had a lot of debates about were we doing the right thing, but we made the commitment time after time. We were wrong sometimes. I was fundamentally convinced that pen-based computing was going to be a huge trend. We were the largest developer of one of the very first planned computer companies, which was called Go Systems. And then there was, became part of, and then they, uh, there was another one called Grid. I firmly was convinced of it. Today it still isn't there. But it was, I was so convinced of it back in the you know, mid-90s that we put a lot of resources into it, we were wrong. But we were quick enough and nimble enough to basically say, we need to readjust and rethink that. And I think to have the open-mindedness, 
and it's a delicate balance. It's a balance between the conviction of what you believe in and what you see and sticking with it for long enough to be successful, but also listening to what the market feedback is, ideally from your customers and then secondly from your competitors. You know, the old Sun Tzu claim, keep your friends close but your enemies closer. I knew every one of my competitors by name. I knew their top management. I knew all of those people straight up. And I got to know them a little bit better when websites first came out. Because again, believing in where it was, we were firmly convinced that the web was something big when we first started getting into it in 92, 93 timeframe. And so what I did was I bought up all the domains of my competitors. <laughs> and also some large customers. And I went to the customer and said, this is a thing you might want to do. And uh, we'd be more glad to do it for you. And they, we never held the domains hostage, let's be clear on that, except for my competitors. I bought every one of my competitors' domains. And when they found out, they're like, we're going to sue you. I'm like, over what? There's no case law here. And, um, but what I did do is I got a non-compete from each one of them that they couldn't hire any of my employees for five years after I donated it to them. So it worked out really well. Because we were early in the cycle of it. So from literally 93, 94 to 98, 99, none of my competitors could hire any of my employees because I had their domains. And I let them all have them in return for that contract. Mark, I've learned something new about you. You didn't know that? <laughs> Watch out. So, you know, one of, the, uh, one of the reasons I was so glad you all agreed to be on this panel is that, you know, success, um, I think when people don't see what that looks like, it can feel like somebody, you know, the person who's successful won the lottery. And what you actually know, of course, growing a company is, you know, how much you, you bleed and sweat over it. I'm curious about your challenges, um, Bonnie, for example, for you, you know, the, the story the, when you had that Department of Defense contract and partner, was that, was that the biggest challenge you faced? Um, I think so. I mean, that was the challenge um, that could have closed the, closed the doors. So. Maybe if you want to give a little detail for people that don't know, or, or I can if you want to. Sure, I'd be happy to. So um, relive this bad moment for us. Right. <laughs> well, it has a good. I need. I think I need to have some onions or something. I can't get the tears going anymore. Um, uh, so uh, we were my first company that I founded. It was a um, clinical infectious disease testing laboratory, and one of the things that we did right. And um, I was just talking to somebody before, and he was asking me some questions and. I was telling him, well, I think that we were, you know, rather lucky, you know, to be involved in understanding the, um, the growth of uh, the field that we were in. But then I, I started thinking about it, and maybe it was a little bit of luck, but I think it was more um, knowledge of the industry and really understanding um, how the industries were going to go, whether it be the medical field or the software field, but um, we were one of the very first laboratories that um, did molecular diagnostic testing. And this became very, very important um, during the AIDS epidemic because we were, it became the gold standard of how to do um, testing um, for, um, for the presence of, of the disease. So the uh, DOD um, had a contract out uh, for a laboratory to be doing all of the HIV testing throughout the world for the, um, the Navy, the Marines, the recruiting stations. Um, and these involved the bases all over 
all the bases, um, and then to be able to take that data and then have it transmitted into the DOD's main computer base. So we had never done anything you know, of that scale before, and it was an RFP that came out from the department, and we decided to go for it. Well, we could certainly envision how to go about doing the laboratory side of it, but we had no clue as to how to do the IT part of it. And unfortunately, I didn't know any of these guys at the time. So um, we wound up partnering with a company just outside the Beltway um, that had done some previous work with the DOD and that they would develop the, you know, the system, the transmission of data system. And then we would, of course, build out the labs, which was a complete robotic lab, um, high-throughput lab. Um, so lo and behold, we get, we get the contract, and the requirement is to have a laboratory in place ready to be testing specimens in 60 days. So we, we were, you know, That's 80,000 samples a day. 80,000 right? samples a day from all over the world. Okay, many funny stories about that. But, um, um, so, but you, know, you, 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 don't, you don't just wait till the last second and say, gee, what am I going to do? So we had been developing our plans during the course of the um, decision making on the department as to who they were going to use. So we were pretty ready. Um, and then, of course, we, you know, we gave the go ahead to this um, IT group. So we're going through it 60 days. The specimens are coming the next day. We were ready. We had everything qualified, all, you know, the whole thing ready to go. In the meantime, this software company had been showing us these screens of how this was going to be done. And you know, they, you know, they don't worry, it's going to be done. Well, as you can probably all guess, uh, the day that the samples came, there was no software program. Okay? It never, they ran into difficulties. It never, they, they never got it to work. So, you know, and then a lot of these contracts, of course, say that, you know, if you don't perform, you know, not only do you lose the contract, but there's also fi significant financial penalties for you. So, I mean, it really was not only losing a huge contract, but, but it theoretically could have shut down the whole company. So, so you know, then you go into, Plan B, you know, in problem solving mode. So long story short, the way that we solved it was, first of all, we got rid of that contractor and we negotiated an, a new contract uh, with another company that we were certain would be able to do it, but there still was a lead time of about two months. So what we did is we took a floor of um, the building that we were in and we um, got a banks and banks of PCs and we hired people, and around the clock, 24/7, everything was manually entered into this program, into this, I don't know, Excel database or something, you know, that was then transmitted to to the Navy, and and we were we wound up being successful, and we chose the right partner the second time, and it was a very um, a very profitable and uh, long contract that we had with the Navy, so. Despite Admiral screaming at you in the middle of the uh, night. Well, that was, yeah, I had the commander of the Southern Fleet <laughs> calling me at like three in the morning. Uh, that was more of an ego thing. He, uh, he you know, everything was coded. It, you know, we'd no, we, there was no names or anything, and he needed to know. You know, these Navy guys, you know, they, you know, they're, you know, you know, I mean, you know, oh, 
you know, they're tested constantly. Every time they go into a port, they have to be tested. Every time they come out of a port, they have to be tested. And he wanted the test results of somebody on some aircraft carrier somewhere in the Pacific. And I could give it to him because I, I couldn't. You know, you, you know it's, it's this confidentiality. And he, at 3 in the morning, read me the riot act um, because I was defying his commands. I told him I did. I hadn't thought that I enlisted yet, so. You have a problem with water. Things related water. to water. The Navy. The water. Yeah, the you're getting the theme. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Jim, uh, you and I have talked about uh, a great challenge you had. I think a lot of entrepreneurs can relate to getting to a day of closing on a transaction. Um, was that? Would you say that was one of your big challenges when you had an investor who? Uh, Change terms. Anyway. It was one of them. Yes, um, I had uh, didn't get the water. Um, I was actually putting together a, a business plan and raised equity and debt to buy a company. Uh, this was my second entrepreneurial effort, the one that almost made it to a success. And um, I was kind of a pig this time. I wanted to keep more of the equity for me. The first time I got less of the equity, but the money came in first. So the money and I together raised the debt and executed the business plan. And it was nice. I mean, 20% is nice uh, as far as ownership, but I wanted to have more. So the second time, I thought, all right, I will be the company. I'll own the whole thing. I will put together more of the transaction. I'll put together the debt. I will sell equity to pay down the debt uh, at or right after the closing. And my, my evil plan was working very well. I had a number of investors who were interested. I had a smart banker helping me, so I had a lot of advice. And we were doing things very carefully but very quickly. Um, and I, I reached agreement in principle with an investor here in New York who is a well-known person. Um, uh, he's been in, I won't use the name. Uh, he's been a cabinet member. Um, everybody would know his name if I used it now. We had a great meeting of the minds. He liked me, I liked him, he liked the business plan. We literally hugged in his office. Sunlight was streaming through the windows that day. The birds were singing, it was just gonna be great. So I thought I had that locked up and then I went about locking up the debt and working on the acquisition and everything was come together toward a closing and right before the closing, I got, a, I got a call from this fellow's investment banker. I didn't even know he had a banker in the picture. His banker called my banker to say, we think Jim wants to steal more than my client wants to deal. So here's Jim's new deal. This is like 10 o'clock in the morning. The new deal was a smaller equity bite for me and a pick nature to it, so if we miss any numbers, my equity shrank. And odds are, over time, you miss a number here and there. I would have gone to zero pretty quickly, obviously. And by the way, you've got two hours to say yes. <laughs> 10 o'clock to noon. Well, the banker that I was working with was smart enough to have hot standbys. Uh, this is in the book. We've uh, and I have talked about a lot. We had a number of other investors we never quite said no to. We talked to them a lot during the process, and we told them we have someone we're proceeding with, but we're not sure, will you please keep the file open? Please keep talking to us. And we had been talking to a number of other investors, even as this primary investor looked like he, he was gonna be the one. So we never called the first investor back that morning. We called investor number two. We quickly wrapped things up with him by noon and went ahead. I never called the, the first investor back, ever. So I had a hot standby. So that was a very fast-paced, very tough day, but because we had a standby, we were able to make it work. So that was kind of a pre-company crisis. There were other crises that happened in this company's life where we had a hard covenant uh, default on, on debt when the recession of 2001 hit. Uh, we could have lost the company then. 
Uh, we, we managed to, to squeak our way out of it with a lot of tough talk with some bankers and some new equity coming in. So there, there are a number of crises going to come along the way, but that, that very first one, uh, when the equity tried to maneuver me into some really uncomfortable positions, was a lesson I'll never forget. Thanks, Jim. You know, Glenn, uh, as I'm looking at you here, you, you could talk about a challenge, but you said something uh, when we interviewed you that has stuck with me. You said it's always, it's all personal. Um, we were talking about salespeople, and mm -hmm. do any of you ever hear the phrase, you know, you have a customer and you lose the sale and they say it's, it's nothing personal. You, you want to talk about that? <laughs> So, uh, well, I did have that happen. So we were working on a big deal, and, and we had lost it. And uh, this reasonably high-level sales executive said, listen, they, they said to me afterwards that it's nothing personal. So I kind of stepped back, and I said, so what's just happened is there's been a value shift, and they've taken all that money that you would have had and we would have had, they gave it to them. So they're saying, like, your kids shouldn't go to a better school. And you're, you know, you can't buy your wife anything nice. And, you know, you just extend that out. So the conversation, just like I kind of worked myself into a frenzy, and he wasn't with us the next day. But the, the fact of the matter is that I think, you know, and, and Mark kind of referred to this, this is, if you're an entrepreneur and building these kinds of businesses, it is all personal. And uh, because this becomes a big part of you. And, you know, it was interesting during the Internet days, um, something changed. And during the Internet days, I realized that people would no longer say hello to me. They'd say, how's the stock doing? What's the num I became like a number. But you have a way of becoming very closely associated with your company, and you spend years building this. And so when something doesn't go right, it really is personal. And that's what we try to teach all of our people who, who work for us, that it's all personal, whether you're answering the phone, whether you're building the software. For us, it's a little bit easier because it's very personal to the extent that all of us are in the healthcare business. So when you see your physician and they're using our software, or when you're in the hospital and our software is running major hospitals, Columbia Presbyterian here and, and other major organizations, um, if it, something goes wrong, people die. And that's a big responsibility. So, you know, we take we don't take ourselves seriously, but we take our business very seriously, and it's a very personal thing for us. So, that that's been an approach that's always worked well for us. Um, and uh, but it is something that you wouldn't hear. That story has circulated now enough times that no one would ever say that around our business anyway. That it, that it didn't matter. It wasn't personal. You know, next time we'll get it. You know, those kind of things don't work. And we, and we tend to be very, you know, entrepreneurs, I think, tend to be very performance focused. So in bigger companies, you can win and you can lose and maybe it doesn't matter and people don't know, you know, where, why you exist. And the smaller the company is, the better the communication and the more you are focused on one or two prime customers, the fact that you have to deliver. And so, you know, that's the, even though we have 6,000 employees now, you know, that's the same, uh, same kind of ethos that we try to communicate, which is it's personal, it matters, and the, uh, the client is still king or queen. Mark, I would ask you about uh, challenges. I feel like the last time I did that, I was picking on you. So I'm, I'm giving you... No, I'll, I'll take a challenge. I can do this one. Well, I, I know... But you... I'll pick which challenge. Well, um, but, that's, okay, but I got a different question for you because it amazes me that when you started Answers.com, 
your second company that also went public. Somehow, miraculously, Google put you on their homepage for four years? Four years, 10 months. Four years, 10 months. How do you, Roughly. How do you do that? How did you pull that off? Um, that's, it, was an, it was basically a gentleman's agreement. Uh, it goes back to team. The guy who I partnered with on answers and let's set the stage. I was ready. See, this time I was ready for an answer, and I had one that no one had used before. Um, so now I got to shift to the answers. Page. All right. So let's do this. After I sold Lante, the company I spoke about earlier, and we won't talk about what the challenge was with Lante, but the one thing you should remember if you're an entrepreneur is don't get too overfocused and don't lose track of your own personal being, to where you become more committed to work than you do to your personal life and your your family and your friends and things like that because that's a devastating story. But I won't tell you that story. After I sold that business and we, we, bought, we went public, we went private, we, then we you know, bought the competitors, sold part of it off to one company, part of it off to another company, I was done. I thought, you know, I don't need to do anything more. I was literally at home helping my, friend, my kids do their homework. And I was talking with a friend of mine who had helped start a business years earlier who had an issue with VCs um, where they wanted to shut his business down. And, um, so we started this, literally, I was helping my kids do, the, my son specifically, do his homework, looking stuff up on Google. I'm like, this sucks. You know, you go to Google and you, this is, you gotta, let's, it's come a long way from where it was. But this is basically 2004 timeframe. And you go at the first search result, click through, no, that's not it, go back. Second search result, go through it. And you know, it might have been like a page this long, and the sentence might have been two-thirds of the way down that you were looking for, but it doesn't take you there. It really was a bad experience. And I'm like, there's got to be a better way for someone who's looking for an answer to go out on the web and look for the answer to their question. And we tried to ask Jeeves, because I, I was friends with, again, the importance of knowing your friends and your enemies. I was friends with the CEO of that company, just coincidentally, because he used to run a consulting firm. And um, got the idea that I could basically put all, you know, take the software company that my friend was had started and was, was running, I was involved with, and flip it around. Not make it a software company, but make it a website. And on that website, we would basically allow you to take any information, look it up, and have a destination page that had what eventually became, and still is today, a little more than that now, 250 authoritative sources, everything you wanted to know about that topic on one page. And with easy navigation to go find it. So if you were looking up something about, say, Chicago, the system could come back and say Chicago the city, Chicago the musical, Chicago the music group, Chicago the play. You know, there's many different Chicagos, but it would be smart enough to look in the context on the screen and know what Chicago you were talking about and easily allow you to jump to the other ones if it was wrong. I thought that was a cool idea. And so I went to my friend and I said, this is a cool idea. And he said, well, this really isn't what our business is. I said, I don't care, this is a cool idea. <laughs> and, um, but he had something I wanted. He had the patent that allowed us to uh, click any word on the page and do that contextual lookup. So I convinced him that let's at least build a skunk works to do this. We did. And um, literally in about two months, we had the idea of working and really working well. We launched it in um, late 04. We publicly launched it in January of 05. Shortly thereafter, he and I were talking to a friend of ours who worked at Google. And she said, that's really cool. And I think we would like to use it. Can we you know, use it at Google? Well, sure, absolutely we can because we had no traffic. We didn't know how we were going to get people to come see our cool site. So the next thing you know, we got someone within Google who said, can you do this, this, and this? In other words, and it's no big deal. And most people who aren't techie could care less. But we, they asked if we could put a question slash R equals 67 after it. I said, sure, we can do that. 
Next thing you know, we started seeing traffic just grow. And what they had done was they had a, um, a definition link at that time. It's subsequently been dismissed. Um, in the upper right corner, whenever you looked up anything, there was a definition link that allowed you to click on it and look up what that word was. And they historically had used dictionary.com and McGraw-Hill's um, McGraw uh, dictionary. And that's what they did. Well, they started pointing to us because we had a far better dictionary than anyone else had. And we could do it with words, we could do it with topics, anything. You know, so if you typed in Britney Spears, it knew Britney Spears was a person, not Britney, a place in France, and Spears, things you throw. And, they thought, and so literally, we said, this is great. We want a contract. They said, no, we don't want a contract. We're going to use it as long as it provides value to our user base. We're constantly testing it. At some point, we may turn it off. So we had a very important decision to make. Do we allow them to use it without a contract and bring tons and tons of traffic to our website? Or do we stand by our guns and say, no contract, no deal, don't do that to us? Fortunately, for your four years and 10 months, we agreed to go day to day and let it happen. And we basically built a business off of that because shortly after that, um, the Wall Street Journal, uh, Walt Mossberg saw this and said, wow, who are you guys and how did you get this place on Google? I mean, literally, every, every search page had it in the upper right corner. How'd you get that? They like what we're doing. You got a contract? How'd you? No contract, just an agreement. They can turn it off tomorrow if they wanted to. And then when we went public, that was a big risk point for being public, is that we had no contract with Google. But for four years and almost five years, four years, 10 months, it was up in the upper right corner. It started off to be 80 plus percent of our traffic. By the time they announced two months ahead of time that they were going to turn it off, it was less than three and a half percent of our traffic. But it really was the piece that got us. And the value of that story was the people that we had were able to do business with had known us from a former job and knew what we were, knew we were good people, knew we were good, do a good job, and knew we were easy to work with. And no contract was necessary. We were able to pull it off just because of being flexible enough to work with and constantly thinking about how can we be a better partner. Thanks, Mark. It was great. So I, I, have a, I want to push back on one thing you said, and that is, um, you said, don't lose yourself kind of in your job, stay balanced with family and everything. And, and as I look at a lot of new businesses and new business plans, you know, I never want an entrepreneur walking in saying to me, I have a great, I have lots of hobbies, I have a good life work balance and the like. In fact, even at Allscripts, as big as we are, um, you know, for a almost $4 billion company, you know, we don't believe, and I have a top culture and talent person that I recruited from Cisco, and she's the best in the business, and, and, but we concluded early on, we couldn't tell our people that we have work-life balance. We said the best thing we can do is say you have work-life flexibility. So if you want to go home and coach your kids, do those things, you can do them, but then later that night you'll probably be on email. And this is, you know, building companies is a 24 by 7 job. And, you know, there's this great, I think Billy Jean King said, you know, no one changes the world without being obsessed. And, you know, the reality is there's a lot of obsession in people who are building businesses. So after the fact, you probably said, I shouldn't have done that when I was building Lante. But you built Lante, and you created all this value, and you changed a piece of the world for a lot of people. And that's, that's really how it happens. And so after the fact, I always love, I go on these panels, entrepreneurs say, I spend time with my family after you did it. But you know, when you're with a lot of, especially younger people, the commitment to change something fundamentally to build a company isn't, you know, an, an eight to five job. And that's, and that's a big challenge, I think, especially for a lot of our young people, because 
in this country, um, when we hire people, they actually want a good balance. And you know, when we go to India, when we when we're in a place like Brazil, you know, where these these young folks are really hungry, and you know, they will do anything to be successful within all ethical and moral bounds. And I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the amount of work that people are willing to put in. And that's how I, I would say, not knowing everybody, but if you read the book, you know, the hours that these people and the commitment that they had is extraordinary. And that's a big, you know, don't underestimate just the sheer work, persistence, and, and commitment that it takes, because that's the biggest, uh, the biggest factor, I think, in the success of a lot of the folks even though after the fact, they discount it. No, I actually, let me just clarify one thing. I believe you need to be convicted to your business. Absolutely. I mean, for me, an average week, even a, you know, an average week was 70 to 90 hours of work. I mean, so, I... Glenn, I'm sorry, Mark, but Glenn, you know, you're reminding me as you're saying that uh, you were telling me about the movie Two Million Minutes by one of your board members, which is, it's a comparison of two college students in the U.S. at Indiana University, two in China, two in India. And I'm just going to recommend everyone uh, get a copy of this movie. Before I ask everybody else in the panel, how many of you would describe yourselves as being obsessed with your business? Get your hands higher. I'm just curious. <laughs> I, what, 50%? It's a 50% uh, obsessed audience. Uh, Al, were you obsessed uh, with Pemstar, or was your life in balance? Obsessed. Obsessed. Jim? Still is. It's hard to tell where the company stops and I start. And I, I should say, investors know about this and look for this. And if you don't seem to be that committed to your business, yeah. you won't raise the money. Bonnie? Well, I think you have to be. I always tell people when they come to ask me that, you know, if, that if you're not committed and willing to put in the time, then, you know, you ought to go work for somebody. It's a lot better. It's a lot be better for you. But let me, let me add the good news, lest people walk away really dejected, and that is that, that, that I also think that if you love what you do, it's not work. So if you really, if you have a great team, if you have fun, you know, I always, you know, we talked a little bit about Google, and everybody's probably heard about the 20% of your time. You know, well, if you know people at Google, they're there seven days a week, okay? They get all their meals and everything else. This is a trick. They get weekends to work on anything they want. And I've said to our people, you do too, well, at least Sundays. So anything you want, you do on Sundays. And, but, but that is, if you're having fun, you know, this is where the adrenaline rush comes from. And that is, hey, we're changing something. We're making a difference. We're building the company. We're creating wealth for people. You know, I, I always remember I had a, an assistant after we did our first public offering. Her mother, she, she ended up going out and buying a house and putting, essentially paying for it uh, with the proceeds from her stock. And her mother came in, wanted to meet me, and said, I just want to make sure it's all legal. <laughs> and I mean, she was just, this was a life-changing experience that really, and so if you can create that for you know, a lot of young people and people around you, and you see this happening, and you see customers who love what you do, that's really fulfilling. And it's, it's almost hard. We have young people that we have to send home because they don't want to go home because they've never received such consistent reinforcement and success and dollars and the like. And so you, you hire young people and then you start to promote them. And, you know, it's fulfilling. But 
I'd like to say that um, um, I think that there's another side of it. And I think that is uh, um, certainly if we're talking about the obsession for the entrepreneur, I think that's without question. But when you're talking about your employees, and particularly with um, highly skilled younger women, I think it's really important that you have the flexibility to allow them to be able to do their job, but still be able to have the the family time that they need. I've done that all along. I have this. I had this incredible um, group of highly talented women that were young, and it was the times for them to have their families. And we worked out deals, you know, and maybe for a couple of years, um, it was less than a hundred percent. But when it came time, when they came back. Um, there were no more loyal and committed employees as they were. So I guess it depends upon the culture of your business and how you want to run it. But I think that there really is a, um, um, as, 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 the, as the, the president and the CEO, I think it's really important for your people that you're going to ask 150% to sometimes they have to give you less than 50%, but in the long run, you get way more than what you've given. Just, just to be clear, though, because yeah. I don't want to be misunderstood. <laughs> One, um, we, you know, all, I, I would say our people are more focused on family events and that kind of thing than, than most companies. The issue is, you know, they have a drive and an expectation to then late at night after the kids are asleep or that kind of stuff, they get, and so we don't, the hours, frankly, don't matter to us. We also pay our people to volunteer. So on the one hand, we're pushing them. On the other hand, we're saying, we'll pay you to go out and volunteer in the community. And that's the tricky balance that you try to create. But I agree with you 100%. You can't do anything to, to lessen and empower any part of your workforce. Jim? At some point, it becomes important to understand yourself and what you are good at and what you're not good at. Uh, most companies start with one person. Some start with a team. And they are the core, and they are the crazies. They're the ones who work themselves sick, who never really put down the tools, who are working 90-plus hours a week. And companies need that to start. Uh, but you expand by working through other people, and you do it better if you understand yourself first so you know what you contribute and then identifying what you don't contribute and complementing yourself by adding people like that around you and building a team around you. And people on that team generally will not work 100 hours a week. They don't need to. They shouldn't be asked to do that. They're not taking the risks you are taking. But you need them. You multiply yourself through them. And the more diverse your team, the larger the company, the better it can work if you're smart about this thing. But it starts with understanding yourself and what you're good at and what you're not good at. I did that early on. I hired a psychological consulting team to study me after my first failure. We spent a week together. Tell me about me. Tell me what I'm good at. Tell me what I'm not good at. Tell me what I prefer to do, what I don't prefer to do. I think I know, but obviously my record of failure so far doesn't look like I knew what I was doing, so help me out with this. And I've had that profile in my mind ever since. And as we expanded our team from I was the only employee for a while, we have 2,200 people working for us now, we've thought about that over and over again for years, thought about what skills, what insights, what viewpoints do we need that we don't yet have? Because diversity is strength. And it's not just diversity in the normal definition. It's how people think that are different from you. The, the, the experiences they bring that you don't have. The visions that sometimes they have that you don't have. That's even a delightful thing. Sometimes you find people with better vision than you. 
They can take your idea and make it even better than you ever thought. That's a real kick. And you can do that if you're smart about how you build a team around you. I like the fact, Jim, that you hired the shrink when you didn't have the company. <laughs> and it was just you, and that was great. Al, you had something you wanted to I was going to add in, in the other important part in, in balances, and this particularly applies to technology, is that everything goes through cycles. And, and there are times when you're launching the product, designing the product, or getting, getting ready for this where you, you, the team needs to be there all the time and available certainly 24 by 7, but there are other times where, where there is a gap and, and in technology is always you know, recognize where that gap is, take advantage of it where you, where you can and then be ready to hit it again when, you know, when the next cycle starts. Does anybody have any questions for our panel? I have an answer I'd like to give you haven't asked about. Yes. I think at the very beginning, a good business idea has a couple of ingredients and that is solving a problem and finding someone to pay for it. Uh, but then it becomes a business when you add capital and talent. Uh, until then, it's not a business. But that could be misleading, those first two things. And, and I come from the media space, and so a lot of things in media have gone in the wrong direction lately because media often did not understand what their business model really was. Newspapers thought they were in the business of selling news. Wrong. 20% of the revenues came from people who bought their news products. Newspapers were and are in the business of delivering audiences to advertisers. That's the real business. They've got to think, what problem am I solving for whom, and will they pay me enough to make it a business? It's not always immediately obvious what it is. You've got to think it through maybe with some help. Because if you don't, the foundation of your idea is not strong enough for a business. I'm to throw out another uh, question for you, Glenn, because you know, at one point you said something that I found very provocative, which was that if somebody did something wrong, you would let a lot of people know that and that there was a lesson there. You want to elaborate? <clears throat> sure. This is a, this is a very provocative uh, and controversial thing I do. And I would say that my, uh, my culture and talent uh, head is trying to wean me of this habit. But when someone makes a mistake, I'll typically take their, their mistake, or if it's in an email, and broadcast it to a lot of people and say what I think about it. Now, some people say, you know, this is anything from cruel to unfair to, you know, there's all kinds of adjectives to describe it. You know, my issue is that if somebody makes a mistake, some people say you should take them aside quietly. You know, there's this praise in public and, you know, teach in private. And I think we've got that backwards in a sense because if you make a mistake, what you want is you want everybody to know about it. You want everybody to know it was a bad thing and then everybody learns. But if you say, oh, you made this bad mistake, you cost us a few million dollars or what have you, let's keep it quiet, then the person sitting next to them doesn't know. And they're likely to make that same mistake. Whereas when you broadcast an email, everybody knows and says, what a bad day. I'm never going to do that. And now the nice thing is if, if you fire people because of that, that's a different issue. And we never do that. And so it's a little bit like the, the Thomas Watson, you know, when somebody made this $10 million mistake, the legend goes, and they came in, they said, are you going to fire him? And he said, I just invested $10 million. Why would I fire him? And we have that same view. So we tell people to have a, a hardcore but a soft shell. And sometimes, you know, you have a bad day, and that's the reality. You know, whether you're a professional athlete or, you know, we don't say to our professional quarterbacks, let's not talk about him having a bad day or we don't do the olympics and a gymnast 
you know, falls and we say, don't say anything, shut down the TV cameras. No, they're professionals. We treat our people like professionals. Sometimes you have a bad day and everybody should know about it and everybody says, I don't want to do that. I just learned something that's bad. When they have a good day, we broadcast that as well, but not as loud because they're professionals and, you know, we expect them to deliver. Uh, they get paid well, they get compensated to deliver. And so that's, that's tough for people to learn. Again, in this country, we don't like to give, everybody gets a trophy for showing up. And, uh, you know, we don't like to give people direct feedback, but that's how they learn and that's how they get better. And in an environment where it's constantly changing, where every day there's new competition and changes and, and you know, you have to move quickly. And we're competing in a world environment. And there's people who are working 18 hours a day that we're competing with. And we've got to understand that. And we've got to get tough. And I'd rather be tough on our people than have our customers be tough on us by saying we're going somewhere else because you keep making the same mistake. And so it's, uh, but that's not widely, it's not loved, it's not widely embraced, and it's probably a very provocative uh, management philosophy. Part of the job description is not to be unhappy alone. <laughs> it's your job not to be unhappy like alone, you know? You're unhappy, share it. Yeah, yeah. Well, mine is. By the way, I, I really like that because too often entrepreneurs are silent sufferers and they sit home and they're working weekends. Yep. And, and uh, you do, if you embrace other people, once they realize you're holding yourself to the same standards that they are, they don't actually mind it. And then, you know, it's kind of like we have this debate at home where when my kids used to come home, and still do for my youngest, and sometimes, and, you know, I would say, say, well, what do you think? I said, you had a terrible game. They would sometimes cry and everything, and my wife would say, no, you had a good game. But eventually, as they got older, they say, Dad, how'd I do? And so I said, well, well, why are you asking me? Because you'll tell me the truth. And they learned that that was better than just getting someone to say, when they inside, they know the answer inside. They know how they did. Uh, but sometimes you've got to tell them. That's tough. Go ahead, Mark. Yeah, no, I was going to say, the thing I always tell people is, quite honestly, in business, I love learning. If you're not learning, you're not growing. And quite honestly, the only way to learn is to learn a lot of times from mistakes. And so, I was a big proponent, as Glenn, you know, of communicating where people made mistakes, explaining the buildup of how they got to that mistake, what we learned from it, because I never wanted to make the same mistake twice. And if you, can, if you can categorize those mistakes, learn from them, grow, be a better company, be a better individual, it works. And sometimes it's, it is that hard love, but it really does work in the long term, and it really is important. And more importantly, you know, it's, a lot of times people saw that I held myself to a standard even higher than I expected of them and they would always seem to rise to that challenge because again, hiring good people. But the important thing is you know, to communicate it and to grow from it and to say this is why it's important, I can see how it got there and then turn it into almost like a small little case study. Well, I don't agree. So, um, um, you know. Go for it. Go for it, Bonnie. Certainly, um, um, I do believe in learning from mistakes. Um, I think it's important um, that we recognize when, um, when there is an error and, and change. However, um, singling out somebody, you know, um, because they, um, they did make a mistake and making it um, apparent to everybody um, 
um, frankly, I think is demotivating. You know, it reminds me, um, when I sold my first company, um, I sold it to a, a large publicly traded company, LabCorp. Um, and as part of that deal, I had to work for a year. I had a, a year employment contract, which probably was the worst year of my life. Um, I was ready to slit my throat. And, and, and the re one of the reasons was that nobody ever did anything. They were so afraid. They were afraid they were going to get chastised. They were afraid they were going to lose their job. It was all about CYA. You know, and I think the beauty of an entrepreneurial company is not to have those fears, to take the chance, to take the risk. I mean, that's what it's all about. But that all of a sudden, if you start putting you know, all these recriminations on these people and they say, uh-oh, well, maybe if I do this, I'm going to be tomorrow's email and everybody in the company is going to know that I screwed up. You know, I think it defeats the whole concept of being an, a, an entrepreneurial company. So I, I would only challenge you for fun. I, I would only challenge you by saying that in the things we're most successful at in this country, we measure and we do it publicly. And when you go to India, Can by we the just way, hold on this. were you naming people in your emails? Were you I naming do. them? I do. Still, uh, you still do it. Yeah. I don't think I'd want to work for you. So, so, uh, but let let again. Let's look at. Let's go to India. Go to ITT. Go to their their secondary schools. I spent a lot of time in. Bob mentioned that uh, Bob Compton, who is a former board member and, and is an expert in education now around the world and started in India on a trip and we were going to schools because when we, we visit these countries we go to orphanages and we go to schools and we want to understand the fabric of the culture um, and in their schools all their kids were saying I want to be an engineer, I want to be an astronaut, I want to be a physicist and he said you know I can't imagine having those same answers if I went to our own schools in our country and that's where two million minutes started and but all those kids, when you talk about competition, all of their exams are posted. And they're posted outside. And um, so they know, and they, they have very public feedback about how they're doing. And this is the same in athletics. It's the same in every competitive sport we have. And the more you do that, the more you make this an open process, um, in my view, you get better performance. And that's why if you look at where you want to go, you know, we used to go to India to do development because it was less expensive. You ask developers why they go there, development organizations, why they're going there now, and it's because you, you have better technical skills in most cases. So it's not just about the dollars. So I'm a big believer in, in giving people very direct feedback. And I'll just extend that. You know, if you look at the area of HR, um, our ability to give people real feedback. The number of times in my own companies that I've run into people where they say, well, we want to fire this person. They're not performing. I say, great, did you give them any feedback? Uh, yeah, kind of. Did you really? Did you, yeah, did you write them up? That's not the same thing. That's, that's, all, that's private, though. There mm -hmm. should be clear and direct private communication with everybody. No, no question about that. But the public nature of the whippings, uh, I didn't see him as whipping. I didn't always include the person's name. I didn't see him as whippings. What I saw him as is learning opportunities for everyone. See, to that, learn. That's and I, for and I really spun it that way. But I can tell you this: in the 
15 years of directly running the business and then the five years when I was chairman, yep. I didn't have day-to-day -day operations. I never fired a person ever for making a mistake. I fired people for being unethical. I fired people for being disloyal. But I've never fired anyone for making a mistake. Same is true for me, by the way. I fired people for making the same mistake the third time. Uh, you know what? I don't, I don't really want to. <laughs> Which means I, I was too patient time. So. My goal is learn from the mistake. Everybody learn. We just paid a lot of money, whether it was a proposal that didn't go through, whether it was a project that got screwed up, whether it was a customer that we lost. We paid a big price to get this lesson. We, as a company, need to learn this lesson Absolutely. better than our competitors. I'm with you. Let's share it out. Everybody sure. learn from it. Sure. And let's not make that same mistake. By, by the way, one other thing. Just when we talk about, and I was hoping we would get some vibrant discussion, so that's why, that's why I was asked to be on this. But the, uh, the, uh, I told you it was controversial and not, not, you know, we would raise some questions. The one thing is, just to be clear, I don't put somebody's name in there to target that person, but in, in you know, it's very hard when you're working on so something. Just collateral damage? What's that? He's just collateral damage, it's okay? You know, what, what we, we look at it differently. We say, you know, the, the people in our company said, hey, tough day. Tomorrow, you know, Glenn won't even remember it, and that's true, because we learned, okay. we moved on, and like I say, just like Mark said, never fired anybody because of it, and people make, uh, you know, I would say our ratio of mistakes, I've got to be careful, there's probably a camera going, is higher than most companies. So again, it's this, because people aren't, they know that, you know, hey, look, if you make a mistake, you're going to get called out for it. You might get named, you might not. If it's a team, I'm not going to list every member of the team, I'm going to say, My hey, only experience with this sort of thing was during one of my brief forays into corporate America to make money to pay back my, my creditors <laughs> from a failure in the past. And, I worked for a large company that was just like that, that named names, and I've never seen a less, a less open to risk company than that one. Nobody wanted to take any chances at all, ever. And it was reflected in every kind of performance metric you could find. And, and they I, didn't understand okay, wait, about L, the company. A comment from L. I think so. Oh, let's open it to questions. Oh. <laughs> We're going to move off of that. We got yes. people thinking about it. Go ahead. I think it's a great discussion because I think feedback is really important. We believe in feedback in our company. But we talked about the importance of a team. And I've never seen a major mistake that was a learning experience ever made by a single person. So I think the way we do in our company is we say, how did that happen? What would we do differently? What do we learn from it? We don't single out the individual. Because if one person did something and six people observed it and never said anything, then those people are also open to the feedback. So we like to look at the, uh, how did the team look at that? What did we learn? What would we do differently? And when you single out an individual, you then make, it, you, make you think that the individual actually can make the contribution all by himself or herself, which then, I think it's usually the team. There's something important. You've got to go beyond that one step. That is, take what you learn and memorialize that and make it part of your culture so that the culture understands, everybody in the culture understands, risk is okay, mistakes are okay. If you learn from it, you're a better company in total. There, there's a tendency to bury failure sometimes that I think can take away the benefit of what you just described. Yes. Yeah, Dave Holliday from Indianapolis, Indiana. Jim Collins uh, writes about the importance of getting the right people on the bus and in the right seats. Uh, I'd love to hear your comment, first of all, whether or not what you think about that, that concept, but and you've, a number of you talk about the importance of a team. But when you're starting from a dead stop and you want to hire and engage people on your team that are smarter than you and potentially much higher compensated than you're able to afford, perhaps, when you're starting, how do you persuade those really bright people to get on the bus with you? Mark? For me, oh, it was yeah. great. 
For me, it was very simple. I basically was creating an opportunity where, where people could challenge themselves, grow in a way which they could not grow at their current environment, whether it was a current job or coming out of school or whatever. And, I, and basically, I would give people an unbridled opportunity to pursue what they really like to do. And it really turned out to be a great thing. I mean, because we, and I wanted people to push the envelopes. There was no penalty in failing. There was a great opportunity to really take it to ways which we had never thought of was possible before. And people who are really, really smart and who are really, really committed to what they do love that opportunity. They love the challenge. They love the recognition. I mean, I was just as quick to recognize when a group did a, a, something which I, I didn't think was possible. We'll call them out. We'll give them lots of accolades. We'll give them, a, you know, go, they go play whirly ball or do whatever they wanted to go do. That type of stuff, it, but it really is the opportunity to do things that they can't do in a lot of other places. Because in so many organizations, they're plugged as a puzzle piece. You're going to do this, here's the boundaries, don't do this because that's someone else's job, don't do that because that's above your pay grade, don't do this because that's below you. I have just basically wanted to solve the problem for our customers because we wanted to win more customers, because if we won more customers, we were a better company. I'd, I'd add to that, uh, you, you, I mean, the, key, the, the key in our case, in, in both companies, uh, Pemstar and Hardcore Computer, which uh, is, is find people that share in the vision and share in what you're trying to accomplish. And, and it's important to get that so they can engage in a team. And, and sometimes you miss. It's not, it, it doesn't happen often, but I think, I think our record was somebody was there for four hours, and at the end of four hours they concluded, this, this just isn't our cup of tea, and that was something coming from a corporate environment. But it's, it's find people that will fit that vision, fit what you're trying to accomplish, and then uh, you know, drive it from there. I would suggest also listen to them and make sure they fit. Sometimes in your zeal to go after a star and you really sell very hard, you oversell without knowing it. I think we all do that. They come aboard and they find out it's not really what they thought. They bought into the sales pitch more than they bought into the reality. And you really want them to fit. You want them to be the right people for the long term. Nobody wants turnover in really important positions. So um, if they don't say yes after a certain amount of explaining what you're doing, maybe that's a good thing. Maybe they didn't belong there in the first place. Maybe you've been spared some pain. And don't underestimate the value of a good cocktail party. <laughs> because when you get people around that you work with, get a little bit of liquor in them, their spouses around, you get great feedback in a really short period of time. And I'll, I tell you, it worked well for me all the time. Let me, without the, without the liquor, um, yeah, there's a what, we do, what we do is uh, we let them talk to a lot of people, direct reports and the like. And you know, we're fortunate because like today we have in, in all scripts, we have a few hundred people who've worked at at least one of our companies before who've come back. And so it's great for them to talk to, not who they're interviewing with, but we tell them, go and ask everybody, what's the worst thing about working here? Because if you can get those, if they still want to come after they hear that, and, and then it is about team. It's not just about, because I agree, hiring a superstar is really risky. It's better to hire a great team player. Yes, question. Hi, this is Arjun. Um, I actually wanted to ask Glenn a question, um, keeping education and trends in mind. Um, where there are a lot of entrepreneurs that believe that being, you know, as a student, um, I view this as if you drop out of college or um, build a company on the side, and you know that seems to be the way of success. Um, but when entrepreneurs like Peter Thiel are investing hundred thousand dollars in companies that um, are run by com uh, people who are less than under the age of twenty, um, he invested two point four million dollars recently. 
Is it a new trend in education? Um, is it something that's being more prevalent in society um, where education is in the venue for success anymore and building a company is probably a better, sh uh, more um, sure way of getting success? Well, I, I, there's a number of ways to answer that. One, I think education, if you're talking about education in the traditional sense of having a college degree, um, I think that's probably less important, especially in certain areas of, you know, the internet and other areas, if you have a great idea. But, you know, again, one of the things we talked about is commitment. And you can learn an enormous amount on the internet. You can learn from a variety of sources. So you can see great people who come on board who may not, who may be younger, um, they may be older. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't really matter. So I think it's not just one criteria that you should use. You know, that said, I mean, uh, my view is learn as much as you can. I do think our current educational system is fundamentally broken and, you know, that all of that's going to move to the Internet. And um, so as it does, you know, uh, that's going to allow people to learn in different ways. It's going to turn upside down what degrees mean and the like. But, you know, we see, we, we now hire, we've taken out a few things on our employment applications, home phones, which, you know, we used to have a mandatory field of home phones. We'll try that with young people and increasingly with people who are older. Um, second thing is just sheer education. You have to have this degree or that degree. Doesn't really apply anymore. We want to look for the fit. So I don't know if that answers it, but um, I wouldn't, I would not invest in someone because they, they hadn't finished college or what have you. It's a level of maturity. It's what they've been through in their life. You know, we have a lot of people coming back uh, from, uh, you know, from the armed forces who have, these are young kids who are 20 years old who've had more responsibility over in Iraq and Afghanistan than three quarters of the college graduates we, uh, we interview. And so we look, you know, we love to hire those kind of folks. So which, which part of education, specifically in business schools, because I'm from the business, the New York Institute of Technology um, School of Management, which part of the business school would you recommend changing or altering to better prepare students for the coming age, especially in the intern, intern space? Well, again, it, it depends. Uh, you know, it's a longer discussion. It depends what you're, if you're going to be an engineer, you need to go and get, you know, learn basic principles. If you want to go out and start a business, I, I do some teaching at Harvard and at, at uh, Kellogg, and, and I always tell them that if you want to go out and start a business, then go out and start a business, and you can watch Michael Porter on, you can buy his best videos, and you can read his books, and you, know, you don't have to be housed in a really nice facility to do that. So, so I think there's just a number of ways to acquire knowledge now today. Scott, you had a question? Uh, Scott Keffer, thank you first of all very much. Great insights, great insights from all of you, different perspective and really appreciate it. So if your son or daughter was starting a business today, I just wondered what one piece of advice would you give them? I think Jim, I think Jim needs to start because it's clearly firecrackers, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Read the book, right? Yeah, okay. Um, yeah, I think today you can start a business more easily than you can start a company. People get caught up in thinking, I want to start a company. Start a business. Find a way to make something work financially. So just freaking do it, you know? Just get out there with your credit card and do it. Try something. You'll fail. It's okay. You'll learn from it. You'll figure it out. You don't need an office. You don't need a staff. You don't need lots of things around you. 
Just try something. Hi. Bonnie? My name is Malcolm Ilvey. Two of the things... Oh, excuse me, one second. Hang on. Bonnie? Well, I'm sorry. Um, all I was going to say is I do have a son that has started a business, and um, he never ceases to um, amaze me at how, at how capable he is. And I think um, it's the, the, the value that I, his greatest value that I see is in his ability to um, carefully um, think through a problem and come up with a solution that many times is a compromise, you know, where his ego doesn't get in the way and to really focus on what's the right path for the business. Because as we all know, sometimes you can um, uh, win the battle but lose the war. And, um, and that's something that's hard for some people to understand. So I, it's, um, I, it's, it's a collective kind of a thing of how you really view what a business means to you. Thanks, Bonnie. Uh, no, sure, my, mine's really quick. One, I tell them to first travel, because uh, especially in the U.S., you've got to spend time in India and China and around the world. Um, you know, I, second, I wouldn't rush to go into a business, especially a big business. And lastly, I do what you love to do, because if you, I have a son, my oldest uh, is a glass blower, and you know, my first reaction was. How do you make money doing that? And, uh, uh, and he lasted all of one semester uh, in college, and that wasn't for him. And once I got over that, now people say, oh, it's great. You, you know, he's just a glassblower, and you're OK with that. Yeah, I'm OK with that. That's the decision he made. So now I'm OK with it, and I get credit for that. But the reality is that's what he loves to do, and he'll do just fine. And then he'll move on. Is it going to be what he does forever? I don't know. So I think we've got to give folks some room to grow, and, uh, but you've got to get them out in the world. As a, someone who's just spent uh, a good chunk of this summer, my son was home for two two-week breaks. He's a junior in college now, and who talk, Glenn just talked about traveling the world. My son goes to school at a fairly cool, which I was thrilled he got into. But he is studying abroad and his, I think it's the vacation plan, but he's studying right now in Nepal. Then he goes to, and his winter quarters in Auckland, New Zealand. Then his uh, spring quarters in Nice, France. And he's got great reasons why he's doing it, outside of the fact that they just happened. He's picking the right holiday seasons for each of them. We'll ignore that. And when he worked in uh, Cape Town, South Africa a year and a half ago because why the World Cup was there. Oh, but he had a great job too. Um, but I, my whole thing is, First off, I don't want him to rush in to do a business. I want him to find what he truly loves. I was very fortunate. And to the question about education, there are several people who quit college and have done well in business. Unfortunately, in that scenario, as in my scenario, I'm the rarity. I believe in what I did and I got lucky. I was able to be good at it. I, still, I enjoyed it. I was able to be good at it. I got paid to do it and I made money from it. Not many people have those four aligned in a certain way. And so I want my son to spend a lot of time learning, discovering himself, discovering the world. And before he gets that commitment, make sure that when he gets to where he feels compelled to start a business, to provide a service, or to do something, it's something he truly believes in. Because when you get into it, you have to put your whole being into it. You have to be passionate about it. You have to think about it. You have to wake up with it. You have to go to sleep with it. And the reality of that is you need to really understand yourself and the opportunity at hand. And that is what I think is the driving force for him. Al, you have the last word. The thing I'd add to is I agree with a lot 
has been said is find something you like, do it extremely well, and do it better than anyone else, but also find other people that do it because you're, you're not going to change the world as one person. You're going to change it with a group of people, and to the extent you can find find others, and, and, and it's best to do that at an early age that, that fit, have the same vision, have the same desire to accomplish what you do. You know, start, start picking them up early. Small counterpoint, sorry, but I would worry that there's a saying perfect is the enemy of good. If you're waiting for the perfect opportunity, if you're taking your time to find something, how many chances have you missed to learn something through trying and failing? I, agree. I think I think something to be said for that. Get out there, Christ. My one of my key phrases: done beats perfect every time. Okay. <laughs> so, on, on that note, I'm not going to take that last question. I just want to thank Al Burning, Jim Dolan, Bonnie Baskin, Glenn, Glenn Tolman, Mark Tebby. Thank you so much for being on this panel. Thank you all for being here. Thank you.